following is an in-depth analysis. If you haven't seen this movie, you might want to before watching this review. When Captain America The First Avenger was released in 2011, it was to the Marvel franchise what the white stuff is to an Oreo cookie. The cookie part tastes good, but it just doesn't feel complete without that creamy center. Arguably, Captain America is the center, or at least the foundation, of the Marvel Universe, in the same way Superman is for DC. We've already had the selfish, narcissistic playboy who has to learn that the world is larger than himself, the rage monster who discovers how to channel his anger into something constructive, and the god who realizes being a hero is about sacrifice. Each of these characters must perpetually fight their natural tendencies in order to be great heroes, while Captain America starts out with everything he needs but the brawn or the genius or the power. He's already got everything those guys spend entire movies discovering, suggesting that people who are at a physical disadvantage might be more likely to go through those character-building struggles in their day-to-day -day lives, and some of them might be exactly the sort of people who should get superpowers, perhaps even suggesting that the handicapped or disabled shouldn't be summarily dismissed based on what they can't do because society needs people of great character overcoming great adversity to inspire it not to give up when the going gets tough. Somebody like Steve Rogers won't take that power for granted because he knows what it's like for the people who don't have it. This is, of course, another origin movie, but it's not about a protagonist who has some big lesson to learn. Steve Rogers never changes, though he has myriad opportunities to do so. It's the world at large that has the character arc in this movie. Captain America The First Avenger is, to a degree, another throwback to a black-and-white adventure serial, and it even homages those with the movie in a movie. I love all the real-world, golden-age-era stuff thrown in here, where Captain America is actually a comic book icon and a movie star, and it gives fans the chance to see Chris Evans in the classic costume. Those serials were simple, uplifting adventures about good versus evil with a stalwart hero who stood for something and challenged the audience to stand for something, too. How appropriate is it that it's directed by the guy who directed The Rocketeer? But it takes a step toward a more contemporary perspective on superheroes by making me believe a guy like Steve Rogers could exist in the same world as those more conflicted heroes. And I'm impressed that it manages to capture that idealistic spirit in an age of angst-ridden and morally compromised good guys, without coming off as cheap or sickeningly patriotic. And it achieves that by making Steve's motivation about standing up against powerful men who prey on the weak, something we can all relate to and universally get behind. It's certainly not without its share of problems, suffering from what I'm going to call forced comic book origin syndrome in a somewhat lackluster third act and a not altogether satisfying romance. But I find it to be a delightfully heightened sci-fi alternate World War II story with a brilliant attention to detail and the best world-building stuff in the whole of the Marvel movie continuity, the creamy center that puts it all together. If Iron Man is the introduction of the fantastic science, and Thor is the introduction of the quote-unquote magical aspect, Captain America is the movie that marries those two things together, revealing that both have been hugely influential on the history of this world, dating at least back to World War II, and continuing that idea from Thor that if science is advanced enough, it's indistinguishable from magic. We've got Howard Stark and Arnim Zola both designing fantastic machines way ahead of their time, and we've got Red Skull finding the cosmic cube itself from Odin's treasure room, though I have no idea how he knows that. 
Norse myth must be wicked accurate. I found myself geeking out a little in the theater to see this movie building so much on Thor, which had just come out a couple months prior. All this continuity doesn't feel gimmicky or shoehorned in, but rather serves the story in creative ways and does a lot of the hard labor in fleshing out this reality. I suppose that's appropriate since the majority of the movie is effectively a prequel. And I don't think all that stuff is just clever little nods or easter eggs. I like seeing little hints of frustration from Howard Stark that he's just living in the wrong time to perfect a lot of his ideas, like the hover technology in the car that Tony will eventually figure out and incorporate into his Iron Man armor. And the early Stark Expo was about progress, the bright, optimistic view of the future where science can improve our lives and make the world a better place. Anybody else getting faint flashes of Mask of the Phantasm? Interesting that the technology will continue to advance, but it won't carry a lot of that optimism and faith in mankind with it. This is all not just great fan service and world building, it also serves to establish the good versus evil themes. We find with the Super Soldier Project that science is only bad when it falls into the wrong hands. This period is viewed to a degree through rose-tinted glasses, both narratively and in the visual style. It's a simpler and more innocent time, but the seeds are planted for all that morally ambiguous stuff that Captain America will one day have to face. We have characters like Stark, who are driven primarily by wealth and fame, so certainly everyone's hearts aren't really in the right place. And of course, that's the point. You can't help but wonder, after the effect his example has on everyone around him, what the world would have looked like over the next 70 years if Captain America hadn't been trapped in ice. I like how in Iron Man there's that recurring motif of Pepper's proof that Tony Stark, quote, has a heart. And in this movie, Steve wears his heart on his sleeve. Erskine repeatedly reminds him that that's the true source of his power, while Tony Stark needs an arc reactor to keep his heart going, and he had to endure a horrible ordeal which almost stopped his heart in order to start focusing on the well-being of others. One's literal and figurative heart is natural and pure, and the other is artificially and constantly being tinkered with and improved upon. When compared, a really vivid and well-conceived metaphor forms there. The contrast between Steve and Tony is plainly drawn between these movies, before they spend a second of screen time together. I think it's really interesting that Captain America not only works with the father of the hero he'll one day have enormous moral and philosophical differences with, but it's also Howard Stark who shares a similar worldview to his unborn son who builds a lot of the very technology Captain America relies on. Furthermore, we can infer some of the moral compromise the Avengers will begin to explore later. Without self-motivated men of ambition, Captain America wouldn't have the tools he needs to do what he does. It could be argued that without his polar moral opposite and arch enemy, Johann Schmidt, he would never have been given the opportunity to stand up for those beliefs. After all, it was Schmidt who worked with Erskine in the first place, after Hitler forced him into serving the Nazi regime. These ideas aren't brought to the forefront, only lurking beneath the surface, because we're looking at this period through Johnston's nostalgic lens, having already seen a greater future for this world. I'd argue the bookended present-day scenes are not only a frame of reference to set up Steve's thawing for the Avengers, but also creates a contrast of the way he remembers his time versus present-day New York an alien, surreal sort of place. I think this good old days approach reflects how Steve himself remembers the past. Steve feels like a real person to me because doing the right thing is hard for him. He remains steadfast in what he believes in, but we see him constantly knocked down for it, and in one scene, after he's still being bullied even as a super soldier when he takes his USO stage show to troops who don't take him seriously and throw tomatoes at him, he even briefly looks as though he might give up. 
He has self-doubt because he's a vulnerable human being. It's his actions that count in the long run. Survival of the strongest isn't sustainable for Captain America. We see that played out with Red Skull at the end, the idea being that no man is all-powerful and we're more the same than we are different. So you'll only be on top until something more powerful than you comes along, or until you're arrogant enough to try to control something more powerful than you can handle. But if we all gave of ourselves for the good of everyone else, as Steve demonstrates time and again, beginning with the fantastic dummy grenade scene, civilization on the whole always benefits. It could be argued that the price of Steve's pure altruism is too great, that the good of the whole shouldn't have to mean someone sacrificing his own life. But Steve's philosophy, which I can infer from his disgust at Red Skull's worldview, is that seeing your own self-interest as the greatest end means that you not only aren't willing to sacrifice yourself for someone else, but you're willingly impinging on the rights and well-being of others in the name of your own ambition. In other words, if everyone had Steve's regard for human life, his philosophy of jumping on a grenade without hesitation to save the group, nobody would be throwing grenades in the first place. Before he's turned into Captain America, he's a scrawny, asthmatic weakling, constantly getting beaten up because he isn't afraid to stand up to bullies. He tells Peggy Carter on his way to the program, pointing out various places where he's gotten the crap kicked out of him, that he can't run because if you do, the bullies won't let you stop running. It's easy to act courageous when you're big and powerful, but the only tools a weak man has are confidence, tenacity, and perseverance. And Steve uses those things even when he knows he's going to lose because it's not about the end result, it's about upholding the ideal. I like that things don't immediately get easier for him, even once he's been given that godlike physique. He works for everything he gets and nothing is handed to him. This is extremely important when you're dealing with a superhero who goes from pipsqueak to Hercules in a couple of minutes. He gets that opportunity opportunity because Erskine sees his determination and integrity. He doesn't just get lucky, and then he has to prove that he's worthy of it. I also like that Steve knows when not to follow orders. Colonel Phillips wants a good soldier for the program, someone who fights well and follows orders. But Erskine has seen the Red Skull, and he knows that what they really need is a good man, someone who does the right thing and can't be seduced by power or corruption. Someone who blindly follows orders can be seduced, and he might abuse the power he's given or even allow himself to be manipulated by the wrong person in the name of following orders, which is the big excuse that allowed so many atrocities to take place in Nazi-occupied Germany. So yes, Steve is willing to throw himself into enemy fire in order to protect his comrades, but he's also got some brains. It's a little like losing your sight or your hearing. Your other skills become sharper to compensate. If you don't have muscle, all you have to rely on to fight back against a bigger enemy is your wits. Steve demonstrates this when he pulls the pins out of the bottom of the flagpole during a training exercise. The goal is to reach the flag, something no one has done in years. It's a tall, looming opponent that says, you can't beat me, I'm bigger than you. The other soldiers, used to relying on their physical strength alone, try to climb the pole to beat their enemy with brute force. But Steve realizes that this is an instance where you can't follow the rules because the rules aren't fair. It reminds me of the Kobayashi Maru in The Wrath of Khan. If it's a no-win scenario, then what's the point of following the rules? The test isn't fair in the first place. So if the only way to win is to cheat, well, you cheat because you're showing the superior foe trying to bully you 
that you found his weakness. The lesson here is not to do whatever you have to in order to win. We see later, when Steve breaks rules and defies orders to save Bucky, that he only goes against protocol when he thinks it's the right thing to do and when it doesn't compromise his morals. It's not ends justify as the means, really. It's that sometimes the rules aren't compatible with moral right. In the poll scenario, the rule Steve broke was to climb to the top of the flagpole to get the flag. But the flag was unattainable. So he's making a point there that sometimes the rules don't account for everything, and that a soldier sometimes has to make judgment calls in the field. This isn't a combat scenario. The flag isn't an enemy soldier Steve's trying to get in order to take him out. It's a POW he's trying to rescue from the enemy, because I think that scene is foreshadowing his rescue of Bucky later, something he can only do by risking his own neck and his own career. There's a lot going on in that flag scene. Several of our main supporting characters are bullied just as Scrawny Steve is, and the different ways in which they react to that help explore that theme and serve to further inform Captain America's character. Artem Zola is bullied by the Red Skull into giving him insane futuristic weapon designs to be powered by the Tesseract, and you can tell all the way through that he's not comfortable with all the gruesome murders Schmidt performs right in front of him. And he's also afraid of getting the Blue Zappa Doom himself. He and Erskine are both taken advantage of because of their scientific genius by Hydra. The difference between them is in motivation. Erskine, seeing the awful fruits of his labor, defects to the Allies and finds it within himself to risk his life fighting against the Nazi oppression of his people, which he's helped to perpetuate. Whereas Zola is a coward, first motivated only by his unmatched genius like Stark, he invents only because he can to push the envelopes of science, not because he wants to hurt anyone, but then motivated by self-preservation. This is a perfect argument for Steve's philosophy of self-sacrifice. If Zola refused to cooperate, yes, he'd be splattered all over that evil-looking beehive wall, but then Red Skull wouldn't have any more Buck Rogers sci-fi toys to help him take over the world with. Erskine is the old mentor, the wise man who has made terrible mistakes and come to clarity too late. So seeing potential in our hero, he imparts that wisdom in the hopes of redeeming himself by starting a good man on a better path to make the choices he should have made when he had the chance, like Zola if he changed his mind and did the right thing. Interestingly, this furthers the parallels between Captain America and Iron Man's origins, as Erskine plays the exact same role as Yinsen, the doctor who helps Tony Stark build his armor to escape from the cave. One is a mentor figure who helps his protege find, again, his heart and a positive direction to channel his skills in, and the other gives him the tools to do something great with the heart he has already. Peggy is another character who has been bullied like Steve and who handles that in a similar fashion. It's what attracts them to each other. Peggy has suffered through some of the same ridicule Steve has because she, too, wants to be a soldier. But she's a woman, and it's widely believed the battlefield is no place for the ladies. She immediately recognizes where Steve is coming from because she's on a similar path. Like Steve soon will, she's achieved her status because of her refusal to be suppressed by people who think they're stronger than she is. She may have physical limitations because of her gender, but she's incredibly competent, decisive, and quick on her feet. Also like Steve, she's not handed anything. She earns what she gets and has developed her willpower because she's faced great adversity. Steve recognizes this instantly, when Peggy punches out a soldier for making fun of her gender. Steve snickers to himself because that guy's a bully, and he likes nothing more than to see bullies get taken down a peg. Ha, <laughs> a peg. When I first saw the movie, I rolled my eyes at the obligatory one major female character in the whole movie cliche, and she's a soldier because we've got to get a love interest in there somewhere, but on closer inspection, it earns that one woman because she's a reflection of Captain America himself. Steve shouldn't have been able to get into the army either, but he did it through the same determination that Peggy did. 
Steve and Peggy just barely get enough screen time together to make me buy their attraction, and what time is devoted to developing the relationship gets a whole lot of work done with minimal dialogue. I like the line they throw back and forth to each other about not dancing because they're waiting for the right partner, and the sad payoff where they plan a date they both know they'll never have. It's a lot more effective than, say, the silly repeated, sorry, yeah, I hated that exchange and the much emptier romance in Electra. It's funny how in movies, couples have cute dialogue exchanges in the same way real-life couples have a special song. I like that since Captain America always chooses to put his country in front of his own desires, this is a real tragic end for him. He barely gets a taste of love before he has to make what he thinks will be an ultimate sacrifice. And even later, when he's thought out and still has more life to live, it's still a big sacrifice. Peggy was the only other person he met who seemed to really get his point of view. And most importantly, fell in love with the real him, the wimpy kid who wouldn't give up, not the muscular hunk everyone's praising as a hero, illustrated by the photo she hesitates to look at after Steve takes the bomber down into the ice. I do have one huge reservation about Peggy, and that's the way she reacts to the girl making out with Steve in that cliched girlfriend walking in on the cheating boyfriend scenario. I think it's another attempt at showing us that Steve is still a man, that he can be tempted. But it doesn't play for me, mostly because A, it's super contrived, and B, it throws Peggy under the bus pretty hard. So this really stereotypical secretary starts macking on Captain America because he saved Bucky's battalion, and then Peggy walks in on them at just the right moment, before Steve even has much of a chance to react to it. The way it's cut, I can't tell if he's trying to politely get out of it, if he's going along with it, or if he's so surprised that he can't decide what to do. Without even giving him a chance to explain, Peggy accuses Steve of being just like all the other soldiers and sarcastically throws that dancing line back in his face. It didn't take you that long to find the right partner after all. Then, to add insult to injury, she picks up a gun and shoots him at point blank range while he's holding Stark's pre-painted vibranium shield just because she's still mad about that. She chastises Steve for still not understanding anything about women because he still thinks there might be something going on between her and Stark, and doesn't understand that she's saving herself for him. This might just be a me thing, but I don't have a lot of patience for dramatic tension due to this sort of lack of communication between couples. I don't think Steve deserves this, and neither does Peggy. Steve only thinks there's something between her and Stark because he doesn't understand what fondue means, which starts out as an amusing joke and turns into an excuse for the girl to treat the guy like a clueless ape. I mean, yeah, Steve is a clueless ape when it comes to women, but she seemed to find that naivety somewhat charming earlier. And why does she think they've spent enough time together now for him to be any less clueless regarding women? Oh, I guess it's because she's making the assumption that there's no reasonable explanation for why Steve was making out with another girl. I get that her feelings are hurt, and she hates the idea that he's letting himself go and becoming less than the man she's falling for, but I think she still owes him the benefit of the doubt, especially since it was only a couple scenes ago that she was willing to defy orders to take him for a rescue operation based on faith. If she really believes that much in the guy, I've got to call foul on her for turning on him so fast. And yeah, she gets over it, but that's partly my point. It doesn't serve a purpose beyond cheap drama, and it makes her a little less likable for a minute. Steve loses a lot in his pursuit of doing the right thing. The girl he's falling for, his best friend Bucky, later on his whole world essentially, and even some of those things that help dull the pain when tragedy strikes. 
One of my favorite scenes is when Steve can't get drunk because his metabolism is too fast now. He has the body of a perfect hero, but his mind is still that of a human being, and he isn't even allowed the self-indulgence to drink his sorrows away. This is one more piece of evidence that regardless of his always doing the right thing, Steve isn't a two-dimensional hero. He doesn't go through all this without difficulty or sacrifice. This is another example of that theme we explored last time with Robocop, the hero that isn't allowed to have what he wants because he has to forego personal happiness in order to preserve the potential for happiness of others. Steve doesn't have the luxury of making choices based on what he wants. Or does he? Biggest criticism usually lobbed at this movie is the nonsensical way it gets Steve into the ice. And I can't disagree with that. Unfortunately, it's the other issue that somewhat diminishes an otherwise convincing love story. I want to feel Steve's loss more than I can, and obviously you want the reason Captain America gets frozen to be because of an epic sacrifice, but I'm not as emotionally involved as I should be because I just don't fully buy he has to do what he does. It can be hard to write for a predetermined ending, especially when your origin doesn't get you to the same place the same way. But either very little thought went into the logic behind how this goes down, or it all makes perfect sense and the movie's just not communicating a lot of the relevant technical details to us. Let me break it down. So just before Red Skull gets disintegrated by the Cosmic Cube, he puts the bomber on autopilot. The bomber is now rigged to keep flying really fast, apparently, until it gets to New York, where... Something really bad will probably happen. Steve seems to make a lot of weird assumptions. One is that once the bomber gets there, the bombs are going to go off. But they're on board little one-seater planes that pilots were going to get into, fly out of the bomber, and drop the bombs where they're supposed to go. The planes are even conveniently labeled. They don't seem to be on timers or anything, so I don't know what Steve thinks is going to happen. But I'll give him that if Red Skull rigged the autopilot, it's fair to assume that he doesn't want the bomber to go wherever it's going. Alright, but the bigger issue is, how much control of the thing does Steve really have? He tells Peggy it's moving really fast, he's in the middle of nowhere, and he wants to drop in the ocean so it can't get to where it's going. Now, I've never flown an airplane, much less a giant boomerang-shaped bomber. I asked for one for my 16th birthday, but Mom said we didn't have room in the garage. So I don't know much about autopilot, but I'm going to assume the average audience doesn't either. So as much as I appreciate the movie for not spoon-feeding us a lot of exposition, this is one of those important instances where we need some explicit information. Why does Steve have control of up and down but not speed? Why does he have to dive bomb it into the ice? He's got a lot of room, no land anywhere as far as the eye can see. I get why he might not want to keep going and crash it into any land because he can't be sure those bombs won't go off and doesn't want to risk anyone's lives, but why not gently bring the thing down and then get the heck out of there? You're Captain America and you've got radio. Surely you could survive in the open sea long enough for someone to come rescue you. Or hey, I circle around a bunch of times until a rescue party gets there and then drop the thing down. We aren't told he's almost out of fuel. If he were, his options would be more limited, but he'd still probably be able to get to safety. How it should have ended suggested getting in one of the planes and flying to safety, but again, he might not be able to trust that the bombs aren't rigged somehow. Though I still think that's doubtful, given that they were meant to be flown to a designated city and then dropped. And why on the ice? 
Why does he tell Peggy he's taking it into the water, but then he goes for the ice? Why not make sure they had the exact coordinates so they could find the wreckage? He hides the thing pretty good. Howard Stark finds the Cosmic Cube, but he can't find a giant bomber. And even if he had to be in the bomber for some reason while he crashed it, he's freaking Captain America! Obviously, he survives the crash. What, is he knocked out? Or is he lying there conscious while he's being frozen alive? You can't tell me you can't huddle up in a corner of the thing, right out the crash, and then climb out the top. Any way you slice it, he should have made it out of that fine. And while I'm in criticism land, let's talk about the shield. I absolutely love it as a symbol of protection, both for Steve before he becomes Captain America and as Captain America being a shield himself. I think carrying something to protect himself might even remind him of the weakling he once was to help him never lose sight of that frail kid who needed help and had to grasp at anything he could to protect him when no one else was there to help him. It evolves from a trash can lid to a taxi door with a star on it to the golden age prop he uses on the stage show to the vibranium shield itself. But this is where it gets a little sloppy for me. Because Stark just happens to have an indestructible shield lying around, those early stepping stones seem more like cute foreshadowing moments instead of the genesis of an idea. Up until now, the shield really seemed like Steve's idea. He even takes the prop with him when he rescues Bucky and his troops. He's getting comfortable with the idea of a shield. I really wish the vibranium shield was his idea. It also would seem a lot less convenient because, as it is, it seems like the only reason Stark made a shield out of the only indestructible, most rare metal there is, is the same reason for the way Steve crashes the bomber. The narrative necessitates it. Why a shield? U.S. soldiers aren't even carrying shields. What even inspired that choice? Why not an indestructible helmet? Or why not keep the vibranium around for an urgent situation calling for something really specific that would be super useful to be the most durable thing on the planet? I think the shield easily could have just come with the costume, and Stark could explain that it's made out of vibranium, and he thought it would make sense because Cap likes carrying a shield, and because he's going up against Hydra, which has all these secret cosmic weapons of untold power. Another issue I have with the film is that Bucky doesn't get nearly enough screen time. I completely missed that Zola had done experiments on him when he was captured the first couple times I saw the movie, and when he falls to his alleged doom, it comes out of nowhere, because he's been talked about but not seen through so much of the movie. A lot of this is because of the big montage, where we see Steve leading his team in countless battles against Hydra, which the sequel calls the Howling Commandos, like in the early Nick Fury comics. Kind of wish we got that here. I'm not sure what the best way to combat this would have been. Maybe more shots of Cap and Bucky fighting side by side. Maybe one short mission scene with the two of them. I do really like that Cap gets all this experience leading a team before he ever joins the Avengers. And thank God Captain America goes on a lot more than one big mission against Red Skull, unlike the 1990 film where he's Captain America for less than a day and no one's ever heard of him by the time he shows up in present day. And I haven't said nearly enough about the Red Skull. When Hugo Weaving was first cast, I was elated. I couldn't think of a better actor for such a larger-than-life villain, and he absolutely delivers. He has a fantastic and posing presence, and I find myself waiting with anticipation for his next scene. He's ruthless, completely self-absorbed, and just the sort of power-mad, ultra-vain psychopath you love to hate. It's one of my favorite villain portrayals, and I think Weaving brings him straight off the page. Apparently, he didn't really enjoy the work, and interviews suggest he considers this sort of material beneath him, which is unfortunate, and we likely won't see him in the role again. Yeah, I know he's dead, but come on, it's the Cosmic Cube, anything's possible. But his apparent disdain for the job certainly doesn't come out in his performance. 
I know a lot of fans weren't as impressed with Red Skull as I was, but that mostly seems due to his lack of screen time and the way he's taken out in the end. I disagree about the screen time. I think he's a pretty straightforward foil for Captain America with really clear and simple motivations. He believes he should rule the world because as Zola declares to Colonel Phillips, he can do it. He believes that whoever has the will and vision to claim that which can make one the strongest should be the strongest, and the weak are only there to be stepped upon to achieve greatness. He is the ultimate bully. If he's bigger and better than everyone on Earth, then he deserves to oppress them all. I love how much he loathes Captain America's worldview when he asks him what makes him special and Cap responds with, nothing, I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. He can't stand the idea that someone would have the fantastic power he's been given with a super soldier serum and not use it to attain his version of greatness. Both Captain America and Red Skull see the other as a perversion of himself. Now, all of this comes out without the need to have Red Skull on screen constantly, and that minimal presence is used to great effect, as he feels more like an ominous, looming threat rather than a silly doofus with a skull face who we pal around with until he inevitably gets beaten by the good guy. I think that Darth Vader approach was the way to go here. I also love that it's an hour in before we finally get to see the skull face, and it's well worth the wait, both because the makeup looks fantastic and also because of the way the movie keeps amusingly teasing us about it, especially in the one wonderfully absurd scene where he's getting his portrait painted and we don't even get to see the painting. When we finally get there, it's such a great image. Captain America having descended into the pits of hell to rescue his friend, facing the devil himself on the bridge back to the land of the living. Though it is kind of funny that once the mask comes off, he gets to keep the skull face through the rest of the movie. I guess now that the audience knows that that's what he looks like, he doesn't have to put the mask back on. But I will agree with Red Skull's detractors that the final confrontation leaves something to be desired. Captain America throws his shield at the machine the Cosmic Cube is connected to. It fritzes out, Red Skull is stupid enough to pick it up right then, and he's disintegrated. I like the idea that he destroys himself with an ultimate power that he had the foolish audacity to think he could somehow master. And it's kind of fun that he's ultimately his own worst enemy, like Hitler was, though he doesn't kill himself on purpose, but he does make huge tactical errors because of his overestimation of his own greatness. But it just doesn't play in the epic way it should. Maybe because he doesn't pick up the cube to do anything, really. It just seems like an arbitrary choice. Also, this would have been a good time to pay off the flag scene to demonstrate some of that quick wit to dispatch of his arch nemesis, but he just throws his shield at a big machine and that's about it. I should say a word also about Chris Evans' remarkable performance. The script has the right idea about who and what Captain America should be, but it takes a committed actor with the right sensibilities to sell it, and boy, he's got it. I can't believe I was one of the naysayers that questioned Evans' range when he was cast because I'd only seen him in humorous, sarcastic, self-absorbed roles, and I couldn't separate him from the Human Torch. He disappears completely into the role, and at this point, if you told me Chris Evans was cast as Tony Blair, I'd wait and see before I cried fast. The movie is a technical achievement for the incredible seamless effect that turns a fully buff Chris Evans into a 90-pound weakling, and I'm dismayed at it every time I see it. I wish everyone could watch it the first time without knowing how it's done. It's the kind of performance you couldn't have gotten a decade ago, and a good example of when computer effects are necessary rather than intrusive. Even somebody as committed as Christian Bale, who's lost lots of weight for one project and then gained a ton of weight for another, wouldn't have the time to do both for the same project. 
Overall, I like the nostalgic visual aesthetic, but it's sometimes a little inconsistent because it's not like Sky Captain or Sin City where the whole movie is shot on a soundstage with a green screen to look like a comic book. The scenes that do look that way stand out too much because so much of it doesn't look like that. If it was all supposed to have that ultra-stylized tone, I wouldn't complain, but when we're in the woods, it just looks like location shooting. When we're downtown in the city, it looks like it should, only period. But then some of the Stark Expo stuff looks really computer-generated, as does Red Skull standing in front of the bomber. They look fine on their own, but they don't mesh well with the whole, especially since there are other scenes that are shot with a green screen that don't look like it at all, like the scene in the Arctic when Cap and his team rappel down to the train. Captain America the First Avenger has a lot of heart, great sense of adventure, and it provides some thoughtful and welcome context for the Marvel Universe at large. But it struggles to convincingly make its way into the present day. I'm giving it a 3 out of 4. And now please excuse me, I'm going to enjoy some Oreos. Bye.